If you'll begin turning with me to John chapter 9, where our text is going to be today. I had originally planned on doing this whole story of this man born blind in one week, but then um, began to think about it more and thought it was a good idea to break it up into two weeks, particularly as Jesus brings out a very important concept here in the first part of this passage. And then we'll talk next week more about the uh, finishing bit of this man story. But before we go to the Word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help. Lord, as we come to your Word, we pray that you would uh, help us with it, uh, convict us of our sin, which gets in the way of hearing your truth and oftentimes wants to substitute your truth for our own. And so convict us of that sin. Uh, guide us to your truth. Lead us in your truth. Uh, use it to encourage our hearts and to strengthen us in the faith. Show us more and more who your son Jesus is and what you would have us do on this earth through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I began thinking about this story and um, made me think about you know, what we call the blame game. You know how we... We like to find someone or something to blame on bad things that happen. Just read social media. Anytime something bad happens, somebody's fault, usually Obama's, uh, depending on, but, you know, Obama's fault, or now it's going to be whoever the new president is fault, because it usually goes up the ladder, or it's uh, the police's fault, or it's the teacher's fault, or it's somebody's fault. Why do we do that? Well, we like to feel comfortable, and if we can make something someone else's fault, then it kind of takes the blame off of us and helps us to feel good again. I mean, even something as simple as like a spilled glass of water in my classroom it cracks me up. So I'll just point out that there's water on the floor, and 20 students will say, I didn't do it, without me even accusing anyone or assuming that someone spilled water on the floor. It's because we find comfort. In knowing who's at fault, because we take comfort in knowing that it wasn't us at fault. And this has very small ramifications in things like spilled drinks in classrooms, but giant ramifications when it comes to things like marriages and workplaces and courtrooms. You know, our entire legal system is designed to find who is at fault, to find the right person who is at fault so they can be dealt with and so that everyone else in turn, is set free from that crime. And there's lots of closure with a guilty verdict. People who lose loved ones to murder or some other catastrophe like that, they usually don't feel any closure at all until the gavel strikes down and the word guilty has been, sta been stated. When this doesn't happen or it can't happen for some reason, it's like an open wound that never goes away. And so this is the same reason that we want to have a reason for everything. It brings us comfort. We love comfort. We love knowing about things. We love being able to explain them. And so in today's text, we're going to see the disciples ask the Lord Jesus a question about an apparent bad thing in the world. They're going to pass by a man who's born blind, and it bothers the disciples enough to ask a question about it. They immediately want to know, why is this man born blind? 
And who better to ask than the Lord God himself, the creator of all things, right there among them? Jesus answers their question, and his answer helps us today deal with very similar questions. And so we're going to look at this passage, John 9, verses 1 through 12, in two points, the comfort that we seek and the comfort that Jesus gives us. So with that, let's look at the text today. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Let's stand together as we read God's word. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we'll go straight to the first point here, the comfort that we seek. So you can imagine Jesus is walking with his disciples like they had done so many times before. And they're walking together. And there they see this man who had been born blind. And he was probably begging, even though we're not told that for sure. But the disciples see this situation, and they probably have a similar feeling that we all do when we see someone who has some sort of physical malady like this. We feel pity for them, but we also feel this kind of twinge of of anger a little bit. Like, why does this have to be? We wonder... Why does it have to be this way? Why are there bad things in the world like blindness and and other physical and mental impairments? People who live with these impairments daily, they don't want our pity or our anger. I I know people like this and they live with some sort of physical impairment that they were born with with no fault of their own. And a lot of them are much better people than I am because they have to live with adversity, something that I've had very little of. But it doesn't change the fact that a person born blind isn't supposed to be that way. That's wasn't, that wasn't the way that we were intended to be. And so it doesn't stop us as God's creation, as people who long for things to be right and good. It doesn't stop us from feeling that twinge of, why, is this, why does this have to be this way? Even if we can't voice what we feel... 
That's what that's what it is. That's the heart of it. So the disciples, they want to know whose fault it is. They want to seek some kind of closure in this story. Why does this person have to live blind? So they present Jesus then with a false dilemma. They only give him two choices, and neither one of them are correct. So who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the assumption is somebody sinned. Either this dude sinned, apparently before he was born, or his parents sinned that he was born blind. However, what are they really asking? We have to think about what's at the heart of their question. Who made God mad so that he would do this to him? Knowing the Old Testament, and the disciples were probably fairly good students of the Old Testament at this point, even better now having walked with Jesus all these years, because Jesus, of course, was a scholar when it came to the Old Testament. They really aren't too outside the box to think that God might bring something like blindness to a person who sins. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam, Moses' sister, she's stricken with leprosy because she speaks against Moses. David sins with adultery and murder. And so he's told that he's going to lose his child because of this sin, and he does. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about some money that they got from selling some land. They they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they dropped dead. And so this isn't abnormal from Scripture for someone to be punished directly and immediately even for their sin. However, there are also lots of places in Scripture where innocent people are stricken with death or some sort of malady for no fault of their own. Of course, namely, we, we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for our sins through no fault of his own. And so how does Jesus answer them? There's this dilemma. Well, neither. He says, it was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So think about what Jesus just said. This man lived his life, however old he is, up to this point, as a blind man, never having seen anything, so that one day the Son of Man would walk by and be glorified in healing him. It's pretty incredible. This suggests, of course, that there might be something more at work in the world than our own wishes and our own desires and the way that we see things on the surface. Because many people judge God according to what they deem to be good or bad. If you'd asked this blind man if he thought it was a good thing that he was blind, especially before this day happened, no. He was begging for money, more than likely. He was not, it was not a good thing that he was blind. It was not considered a good thing to have this sort of malady in that, in that world, in that time. And so people will judge God according to what they deem to be good or bad, just like the disciples would assume that it was 
the fault of this man that he was born blind. They'll say things like this, and you've all heard these things. Well, a good God wouldn't do that. A good God wouldn't make a man blind just so he could be glorified. And again, it really makes us consider our definitions of good, since they usually involve only that which benefits us. We are so short-sighted a lot of times in what we think about as good or bad. We can't possibly see the whole picture. If we could, we wouldn't be able to even take it all in. Because when it comes to God, we don't have the tiniest of percentages of his ability to see the whole picture, to see the master plan, and to see that it is all good because he does it all. And our inability to do this leads us to some pretty dangerous places, I'm afraid, a lot of times. Because there are some that would go so far as to say that if you have something wrong with you, some sort of sickness or some sort of permanent problem, some sort of physical impairment, some sort of mental impairment, that it's because of maybe of your lack of faith. And that if you just had enough faith, then you could get over this. I knew someone who had cerebral palsy, and a group of friends told him, hey, you should just pray that God will heal you, and if you have enough faith, he will. Of course, that's garbage. God could heal this man, but he chose not to because for whatever reason, he was being glorified in the fact that this man had cerebral palsy. So it had nothing to do with his lack of faith. He, had, he was one of the most faithful men that I knew. He just happened to have some kind of permanent disability. Or maybe it's some sort of hidden sin in our lives. Well, the reason we're sick or the reason that we are mentally unstable or whatever it is is because, well, we have some sort of hidden sin. And if we could just confess that sin to the Lord, then then he would lift off all of our infirmities and we could live forever. Well, of course, we know that not to be true. But maybe it's demon possession, right? That's kind of the last straw. If, if it's not some sort of sin in your life and it's not your lack of faith, then maybe you're just possessed by a demon and we need to get rid of that demon. Because why, why do we make up all these excuses and why do Christian groups go to these dangerous extremes? Because God does as he pleases in order to bring himself glory goes against the prevailing false narrative in modern evangelicalism, which says, God has a good plan for your life, and everything's going to be rosy. Of course God has a good plan for my life. It says that in Scripture. We know that to be true. But again, what does good mean? So, look again at this profession that we read this morning. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, according to our actions and our desires? No, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, something we can't possibly have, and his free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Incredible. 
Notice, he does not consult his creatures when it comes to what they think is good and what they think is right for their own lives. The more I've learned about myself, I'm thankful he doesn't. He doesn't, or he noticed that he has his own definitions. He does as he pleases. Turn to Psalm 33 with me real fast. Psalm 33. It's a great passage for seeing this. Psalm 33, and I'll start at verse 8. And again, looking at this from the standpoint that God is sovereign over all things. Psalm 33, starting at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the, the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his heritage. The Lord looks down from the heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength, nor the warhorse a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Who is it that holds everything up? It's the Lord. Is it the warrior that saves himself, or the king, that his great army that gets the praise? It's the Lord. So what should our response be to this? I mean, we seek comfort in wanting to find all these other reasons for our problems. We should take comfort instead in the fact that the God of the universe came to earth, died for our sin, resurrected from the dead, and has our best interests in mind as he sits at the right hand of the Father. Not to keep us from every bad thing, but so that he'll get the glory. And he has our good in mind, and we know that. Turn to Romans 8. I'll read a very familiar passage to you. But I think this passage even oftentimes is taken out of context. And so we, I, we need to look at this again as God is sovereign and he does as he pleases. But look at what he pleases to do. Starting at verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave 
him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? All things work together for the good. But again, what is good? What what God does is good. Whatever he does is right. We may not like it, but that is the truth. So we have to trust that whatever it is that God is doing in us and through us or in and through those around us is good because he is doing it. And we can look at all the bad things in the world, and there are some really, really bad things in the world, and we know this. And it might be easy to cast blame on God and think, I thought you were a good God. Why are people starving in Syria? Why do earthquakes happen and and kill tens of thousands of people? Why are there people even in here in good old Murray, Kentucky, that are homeless and freeze at night? Why is that the truth? Well, we can stand and accuse God all day long, but ultimately, we're going to be where Job was at. Look at Job chapter 40. We're in no place to stand and accuse God of anything. Job chapter 40. You know the story of Job. Job was afflicted more than any human had been afflicted, or probably has been afflicted, except for our Lord Jesus. And Job had some big questions for God. Why is this happening to me? Well, this is what the Lord said, and he said lots of other things. I'd encourage you to read Job uh, 40 and the following, because the Lord doesn't really stop here, but this is this kind of sums it up. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Ultimately, with all of our questions, and questions are good, and don't hear me saying that questions aren't good, we should never question anything, because absolutely, we should question and wonder. But ultimately, we this is where we end up. When we contend with the Lord, we have to sit with our hands over our mouth, and we don't really know all things, because we aren't God. We are only of small account, and in order to accuse him, we have to stand eye to eye with him. And brothers and sisters, we are dust. That he would look upon us is incredible. And that brings us to our next point, that the comfort that Jesus gives. He reminds, he reminds the disciples here that he must keep working while the Son is with them, doing the works that Jesus does. And what does Jesus do? He heals the blind. He heals the sick, the lame. What does he do? He came to remove the curse as far as it was found. And so Jesus leans over, spits on some dirt, makes mud out of it, and rubs it on the blind man's eyes. Jesus does some pretty odd things throughout the Gospels, and we can admit that because we don't understand the God of the universe. And so I tend to agree with lots of commentators 
as to why he was doing this, well, how did he create man to begin with? The dust of the earth. And so essentially what, what's going on here, he's recreating this man's eyes right there before him. He's taking the dust of the earth, rubbing it on the man's eyes, and making new ones. This isn't to say that Jesus couldn't have simply spoke new eyes into existence, but for some reason he chose to use means here, which he often does. And in this case, the means were mud and water, and he gave this man new eyes. And so for the remainder of this text, as you see this interaction going on between the neighbors and this newly, this man that has new sight, we see what's going to happen in next week's passage. They're going to wonder why Jesus is healing on the Sabbath again. And they're going to start looking for him. And they're completely missing the point of what just took place. A man that was born blind with the curse of sin on his life, not his own or his parents necessarily, but ultimately Adam's sin, because Adam's sin brought all of this into the world, including blindness is now free from that and has new eyes. And who gets the glory? The Lord Jesus. Because now we read this story even hundreds of years later, and what do we say? Praise the Lord, Jesus, our Redeemer, who takes the curse away and makes things new. Because don't miss what's going on here. This is really just a picture of what he does in the hearts of his people, is it not? Because in Christ, what is a believer called? A new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He took the old part, the broken and the blind part, like this man's eyes that he was born with, like our sinful hearts that we were born with, and he makes them new. In Christ, we go on seeing a completely new way, unlike ever before. And we need this comfort that Jesus brings as he takes the curse of sin and death away from us. And this brings us to what we talked about earlier, needing a reason for everything and finding comfort in knowing answers. Well, in Christ, we know that what he started on earth continues even now. The work of redemption continues even now. Whereas the souls of men and women are being turned toward their creator through the message of the gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is going forward in the world through the work of brothers and sisters in Christ. What does this look like? Again, we can't make the blind to see. We can't pray for someone and heal their eyes. I mean, that'd be great. Only the Lord can do that. But we can walk with those who are in the darkest places in their lives. Absolutely. And we can, we can tell them about the light of the world because we know the light of the world. We can't recreate things like our Lord Jesus did. But we can change the lives of those who live on this earth by providing them with 
spiritual blessings that we have, even material blessings that we have. We have so much to give because of what he has given us. And we can give a part of that even now, even today. The church is the people of God doing his work of redemption on earth today. And so if you're here and you're understanding the message of our Redeemer, Jesus, in a new way, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, it's likely that the word, that the Lord is working in your heart even now. And so turn away from your sin. Turn to the Lord instead. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be great from now on. Hopefully you've heard that. Sometimes the bad things happen, even to Christians. But what it does mean is that he takes your sin and your death and your darkness and he makes you new again. He recreates you. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And it costs nothing. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And for believers, for us, be comforted. Because not only in your own life and struggle, which we should be comforted in, but also as we minister to others. And ministry is tough and it's dirty and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes. Why? Because there's sin in the world. It'd be nice if it wasn't, but there is. And it makes ministry difficult and it's long and it's, and it's tough. But we have the Lord Jesus ourselves to be comforted and sustained and we can give that to others as well. Particularly, I think, as we minister to others that would accuse God, and there's lots of it out there, because there's lots of bad out there. As you're interacting with the lost, you're going to hear these things. You're going to hear these accusations towards God. And here's the best part. You don't have to defend his actions. You just need to tell other people about the redemptive acts that he did. The fact that Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. And he died on the cross for them. There's no greater injustice in the world than the death of the only perfect human on a Roman cross. So that you and I could have redemption. Tell them about that. Tell them about the life eternal. Tell them about the place that he's preparing for his people even now. Tell them about the Redeemer Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us because oftentimes we look at the things that are going on in the world and we have fear and we have trepidation because ultimately we don't know why some things happen. Um, even with a new election season, we're worried because we don't trust you. And so help us to trust you. Help us to know that you have our best interests at heart. Help us to know that what you are doing is good because you are doing it. Help us to trust in what you have done in our hearts so that we can then minister to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.